Yeah, so we have a lot to cover this morning, three chapters of 1 Corinthians, but don't worry, over the next three hours I'll be dissecting every bit of it for you. Why are you laughing? No, I'm kidding. Thankfully, it's much shorter than that. I hope it doesn't feel like three hours. Good morning, church. My name is Eric Weiner. Thank you. Uh, good morning. My, I, I'm the youth pastor here at Waypoint Church. And I just want to, want to briefly say what a tremendous gift it is for my family and I to be a part of this church. I mean, it's, it's hard to cherish days and seasons when, when you're in them. But I believe these are cherished days that we are enjoying. And, and I praise God for that. Over the past several weeks, we've been walking through Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. And what we have seen in, in simplest terms is that life in the church can get messy quickly. The church is casual about holiness, boastful about immorality, and devout in their idolization of men. Nothing we've heard before in the ch church today, though, right? Seriously, though, I mean, so sometimes I'll look on my Twitter feed and see the quote-unquote prominent Christian leaders who are saying to each other, I mean, it's the court of public opinion. And I think, what a nightmare. The world is watching, and I fear the impression they get too often is that the church is filled with unloving people, which means we have a weak-sounding message and a fragile witness. And I think that's what we see going on in the life of the church at Corinth. God has called the church to be the space where the watching world can come into contact with the beauty of Jesus' reign and rule. At Waypoint, like Lauren said, we, we call this the preview of coming attractions. It's an invitation into the already as we await the glory of God to renew and fill the earth. And practically speaking, what results from this are relationships marked by genuine, sacrificial love that is both surprising and compelling. Surprising because we don't really experience it elsewhere. And compelling because we all crave it. We all desire these kinds of relationships. And that is what Paul is calling for. But first, we must step into the messiness. So let's go with him. In context, Paul, Paul is shifting his attention to matters of freedom and idolatry. The Corinthians are asking the question, what do we do with meat sold in the marketplace that's been offered to idols? Culturally speaking, N.T. Wright tells us that temples in Corinth and Paul's day would have functioned kind of like our restaurants today. I mean, they, they were communal spaces for, for eating. The difference is that pe people would also bring animals to, to sacrifice and, and eat there. So we, we don't typically bring our own food to our restaurants, but, but that's what they were in, in, in effect doing. The dilemma for the Christians of the day was that there was often an abundance of sacrificed meat. And so leftovers from temple meals would then be sold in the marketplace for people to buy. Meaning it would be very difficult to even know whether meat had been sacrificed to a so-called God or not. And the Corinthians want Paul to flesh this out for them. Okay, Paul, so, so if, if I'm at a party, can I eat meat? Or if I'm eating with my friends, can, can I enjoy their hospitality and, and the meal that they provide? Or is this only an issue if I'm around people with a weaker conscience? What do you say, Paul? Now, the rationale in favor of sounds something like this. We know that the Lord our God is one, and that we shall love the, God with, we shall love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and might. 
I mean, this is a, an appeal to biblical monotheism. We know there is only one God, and He created everything. That means all the other so-called gods don't actually exist. If everything belongs to the Lord, then why can't I thank Him for it and eat? Clear of conscience. We see this kind of logic in, in chapter 8, verse 4. An, an idol is nothing at all in the world. There's no God but one. The problem, though, is that there are Gentile Christians in Corinth who, as Paul says in verse 7, are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. Meaning there are members of the church who formerly associated with idol worship and believe that eating this meat is participation that taints them with sin. These are poor, former pagans now converted to Christianity who are still learning how to abandon the old self and to live in the new. Now this issue might sound irrelevant to us because we, we don't naturally label food consumption as religious experience, but really the matter at hand pertains to what you're choosing to participate in under the banner of freedom and how that influences you. When your priorities begin to align yourself, even if subtly away from biblical Christianity, then it's problematic. Certainly you cannot expect unity. I mean, it should be no surprise to find selfishness and division. And more to Paul's point is the biblical principle of Christian freedom in all of its practical applications. How am I free to live in Christ? And how is that to be lived out in the faith community? How is that to be lived out among the world? What do I do? And I believe what we find Paul saying is this. True Christian freedom is God-centered and others-oriented. True Christian freedom is God-centered and others-oriented. Naturally, the foundation and source of the Christian life is found in God Himself. We are changed by His Spirit from the inside out. I mean, there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves, but only what God has done on our behalf and continues to do. And that change leads us to shift our focus from inward, selfish, to outward, toward others. The source is God. The result is Christ-likeness. You look more like Jesus when you live this way. God is pleased to do good toward us. So inevitably, our, our looking more like Him looks like doing good toward others. Jonathan Edward puts it this way. He says, a, a true Christian is someone whose inborn selfish tendencies have been decisively uprooted by the all-conquering love of God, love felt and made real through the Holy Spirit. Such a life has taken on an entirely new flavor. Sinful desires remain. The old man, though dying, is not yet dead but a new impulse of tender goodwill now sits on the throne of the believer's heart. Selfishness still exists, but selfishness no longer reigns. And so I believe we see this pattern throughout chapters 8 through 10. The attitude of Christian freedom is love. The demonstration of Christian freedom is winsomeness. And the motive of Christian freedom is God's glory. It is for God's glory. So the attitude of Christian freedom is love. We see throughout chapter 8 that God, godly knowledge should lead to love. Love is rooted in God, and God, godly love is concerned with others. 
Notice in verses 1 through 3 that, that Paul is not condemning knowledge. When he says that, that knowledge puffs up, he doesn't mean that all knowledge leads to conceit. Verse 2 may lead you to think that. But Paul uses the words we know as an, as an affirmation several times throughout this letter to clarify certain actions. No, rather, Paul is saying there's something defective about knowledge that produces an attitude of contempt toward others, that insists on its own way at the expense of others. Those who have that kind of knowledge don't yet know. Knowledge puffs up while love builds up, verse 1 tells us. So to you, Christian, who think you know everything, who is set in your own ways, Paul is saying to you, if your knowledge is really for yourself, if it lacks charity, if it is unkind and dismissive toward others, then your knowledge lacks love and it is inconsistent with the life of Jesus. If your knowing does not yield the fruit of love, then what good is your knowledge? You know nothing. The kind of knowledge a Christian ought to possess True knowledge that embodies real, spirit-filled growth should flow from a love for God. That's what verse 3 says. The kind of knowledge that really matters is not the knowledge obtained by men. It does not matter how much you know, but that you are known by the one who knows all things. And the church should be filled with people who love God and are therefore known by God. Listen to this. God knows you and loves you not by virtue of what you know, but because he knows you as your identity is found in him. For those who are in Christ Jesus, God sees you as you truly are. Though you may struggle to see yourself in this way, God knows you as his child and desires to lavish his love upon you. And so godly knowledge should lead to love, and that love is rooted in God. Paul undermines the puffed-up knowledge of the Corinthians in the most incredibly winsome and humbling way. How do you appeal to those who are proud? By reminding them of the goodness of the God they are known by. The one true God who created all things. The one true Lord Jesus who is redeeming all things. That God, that's the one, he knows you. Yet even still, Paul, Paul makes this contrasting statement in verse five, recognizing the difference between the pagan and the Christian worldviews. And in fact, he's saying, we can't just brush off the views and practices of the world as if what they believe doesn't matter. He says in verse 5, For even if there are so-called gods, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, suggest not that we must honor other gods, but that we must at least consider that other people do. And there are people in the church body who are still learning to understand that. So that's not no big deal. It matters. And Paul's saying it should matter to you. It should matter to the church. It should matter what, what your brother or sister is, is wrestling with as, as they're learning to abandon the old and, and live in the new. So godly love is concern for others. In verse 9, Paul, Paul says, Be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Now remember, some of the Corinthians are using their belief in one God as reason to participate in eating what some who are new to the faith would regard as idol worship. So if they were to do the same, they would view themselves as genuinely worshiping another God and therefore in sin. 
Paul's saying the way that you're living is leading others to live in sin. But this is the picture of the Christian life being modeled for them. Paul knows that the, the, the conscience is not quickly persuaded. You can't just go up to someone new to the faith and say, hey, everything you used to do now is fine. You're good. It's fine. You don't have to change anything. You're good. Paul goes so far as to call this treatment of new believers a sin. They are sinning against their brothers and sisters because they're basically inviting them to go back to their former way of living. Oftentimes, I think when we talk about freedom, what we are really asking is, how close can I get to the line? How, how close can I get before I, before I cross over it? What am I, what am I allowed to do? What's, what's permittable? That, that's what I want to know. I don't want to know what the line is. I just want to know what I, I can participate in. Or we want to assert our rights in order to demonstrate our freedom. Look at what I can do. But Paul is showing us that those are the wrong questions motivated by disordered priorities. No Christian has the right to assert his own way without regard for others. So what we need are new priorities. Paul says in verse 8 that food does not commend us to God. So what gain is there? And in verses 10 and 11, that their participation in eating meat offered to idols is actually inviting their brother or sister to participate in idolatry. They are destroyed by your knowledge, verse 11 says. So why do it? What are your priorities here? You should want nothing to do with anything that makes the gospel hard to believe. Period. In fact, I, I believe this ability to restrain ourselves is actually a good indicator that we actually are free. I mean, if you're truly free, are you able to demonstrate your freedom by practicing restraint? That thing that you love, can, can you stop? Can you limit yourself? Or does your sense of being strong cause you to look down on others? Do you see yourself as a, as a better Christian? Because that's exactly the kind of knowledge that puffs up. And Paul is saying that, that kind of knowledge the church doesn't need it. Hear this. If, if every member of the church belongs to Christ, he or she is in union with Jesus. Meaning there's no such thing as an unimportant member of the body. There's no such thing as an unimportant member of the body. And no matter how far removed or disconnected you feel from someone else in the church, it does not matter. It does not excuse you from loving them and considering them in their faith as a matter of great importance. We matter to Jesus. We should matter to each other. Number two, the, the demonstration of Christian freedom is winsomeness. I really want to drive home this point. I want, to, I want it to be impossible for you to understand the ethic of Christian freedom without thinking of the work Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. In chapter nine, Paul gives his own life as an example to say, look, I'm an apostle. Don't I have the freedom to collect money from the churches I've planted? Don't I have the right to take a wife? But I choose not to claim these rights for the sake of others. Paul's trying to, to show his life as, as an example for them. And then he makes this paradoxical statement in chapter 9, verse 19. He says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Though I'm free and belong to no one, I'm free. I've made myself a slave to everyone. And in verses 20 through 22, he says, I became like, I became like the Jew. 
I became like those not under the law. I became weak. I, I went low. I lowered myself. Why? Why is Paul living this way? Verse 23, for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. When Paul points to sharing in the gospel's blessings, he's talking about partnership. He's thinking of others benefiting with him in the blessings of the gospel. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, union with God. He's saying, I want the gospel to have the greatest impact possible on the greatest amount of people possible. We should all want that. So the goal is for us to love God. And we learn to love God by looking at the source and beauty of love, Jesus. Consider this. In Galatians 5, Paul teaches that the spirit-filled person is the true embodiment of Christian freedom. You know this, he talks about the, the, the fruit of the spirit. What is the fruit of the spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then he says something very interesting. He says, against such things, there is no law. Meaning you're free to do these things without restriction. I mean, who's, who's going to tell you not to do those things? Who's going to tell you, don't be loving toward other people? Don't be kind toward other people? Don't, be, don't, don't, don't live with self-control? Who, who's going to tell you not to? You can do those things freely, abundantly, as much as you want. There's no law that prohibits you from living as a spirit-filled person. And Jesus lived the spirit-filled life. He walked perfectly in accord with the word of God. In fact, Paul says in Colossians 1 that, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so how did Jesus live? He condescended by taking on human flesh, submitted himself to the Father's will, bore our iniquities by absorbing the wages of our sin at the cross, and conquered death in his resurrection. Was he bound to do this? Bound by what? No, Jesus said himself that he laid down his life willingly. Jesus became like man. He became like the weak. He subjected himself to the law. Do you see where I'm going with this? So that by all possible means, he might save some. You see, from the very beginning, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve considered equality with God as something to be grasped. So they saw they desired, they took, and they ate. God made them his partners in his creation project, and yet they said, no thanks. God, we believe you're a liar. In fact, we, we want your place. We want to be our own gods. But Jesus, according to Paul in Philippians 2, did not see equality with God as something to be grasped. Rather, God decided to demonstrate his love for us in this way that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He became nothing so that we might inherit everything as children of God. Yes, very core to the Christian ethic is the belief that you should consider what is in the best interest of your brother and sister. And you do that for God's sake, not your own. Christianity is not a self-serving religion. At the core of the Christian ethic for how to conduct your life is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's an incredibly winsome posture to have. This is not about what have you done for me lately. This is not about what's in it for me or, or how do I benefit. This is not even about how mature, wise, or Christian looking you are. In Christianity, 
the heart behind the question, what's in it for me, has been put to death and been replaced by the question, how can I make Christ more beautiful to you? And you can say that because when you step into the Christian faith, you do so knowing this is the kind of knowledge you should possess, knowing that you can't possibly benefit any more than you already have because of what Christ has already done on your behalf. How can anyone or anything add to the immeasurable riches of the cross? Jesus has perfectly satisfied the just wrath of God and in its place lavished upon you the divine riches of his love. So to deny yourself over and over again for the sake of honoring God and winning your neighbor, and furthermore, to not grasp what freedoms you may now rightly claim in Christ, I cannot think of anything more Christ-like than that. I mean, can you imagine what our church would be like if we considered our fellow brothers' needs more valuable than our own? I mean, what would people think of us if instead of arguing over petty things, we were known by our love for one another? Can you imagine? N.T. Wright says that, that Paul's overall point is to make the Corinthians see that, that Christian freedom is not freedom to do what you like, but freedom from all the things that stop you from being the person God really wants you to be, which is freedom for the service of God and the gospel. Which brings us to our last point. We'll jump to chapter 10. The motive of Christian freedom is for God's glory. Now here at the end of chapter 10, we, we come to the summation of Paul's argument. In verse 31, he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And then he says, Do not cause anyone to stumble, meaning don't create barriers to the gospel for anyone inside or outside the church. Don't seek your own good, but seek the good of many. This is Paul's instruction to us. His point being, let the motivation for everything you do be to glorify God. but how do we glorify God? Apparently, we glorify Him by how we live and treat one another. In other words, if you get what it means to be known by God and to imitate the life of Jesus, all of these other things will begin to make sense. What you want to participate in will have purpose with God-honoring ends. To rightly value the gospel, to make it accessible to others by how you speak and act, to call others into this life, that glorifies the Father. I mean, think about this. Paul is saying that in whatever, whatever we do, there are ways to interact with others that pleases God, and there are ways to interact with others that dishonors God. When you're impatient, harsh, proud, self-serving, couldn't that be any one of us? When that's the overflow of your disposition toward others, what you are saying is that your way is better than God's. But God has called us out of this with his help. We honor God as God when we submit to his will and obey his commands. John tells us in 1 John 4 that whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. So when we fail to love our brother, we profess a weak message and a fragile witness. But when we genuinely care for one another as God has called us to, when we identify with the weak, when we live in such a way that says, I want you to grow in Christ and to share in all his benefits, 
That is how we glorify God. So then what should we do with our Christian freedom? What should we do with it? I have three applications for us. First, we, we should find our commendation in Christ and not in the many ways the world can commend you. Honestly, th- th- this is even the best way we can fend off idolatry. This is the best way we can fend off other loves that compete with God. What is beautiful and worthwhile to you? Pastor Danny actually, actually painted this picture for me um, in our staff meeting this week. He, he said, we will sacrifice our, our time, energy, and resources on whatever we deem to be a worthy pursuit. Maybe it's a business venture. Maybe it's starting a family. Maybe it's career mobility. But consider, for example, the, the benefits of earning a college degree. When you're a student, you, you stay up late writing papers. You pull all-nighters cramming for exams. And you even endure those dreadful group projects. Because the pursuit of a degree makes those efforts worth it to you. The commendation from the university means something. The seal on the diploma means something. The approval of the dean means something. The knowledge, training, and experience is necessary. And so we say that the ends justify the means. But how much more worthy are the benefits of the gospel and the glory God gets when we live as spirit-filled people like he intended us to? And this commendation does not come on our own merits, but on the merits of Jesus that have been accomplished once and for all. The surpassing worth of being known by Jesus and receiving his commendation will kill our idols. Two, be, be partners for the gospel. Be partners for the gospel. The message of the gospel is a gift that's been preserved and passed down through the church for, from generation to generation. The question we must ask ourselves then is, what will we do with it? Paul was willing to lay down his freedom so as not to detract from the message of the gospel. What about you? What will you choose to yoke yourself with? Where is God calling you to be faithful with your time, your energy, your resources? Are you willing to become like a slave for the sake of making much of Christ? Or are you putting God to the test in how you live? Are you with your life becoming an affront to God or a servant by which the gospel is carried forth? Are you inviting people into the community where God reigns and rules to live as new people marked by love? Are you only ever casual, apathetic, or critical toward God and his church? At work, are you willing to speak out against matters that violate your conscience? Or do you easily succumb to the social pressures of the status quo? Be partners for the gospel. Three, imitate Christ and call others to do the same. Imitate Christ and call others to do the same. Are you pursuing holiness and calling others to imitate you? Are you calling others to be like you? Are you inviting others along as you learn to be generous with your resources? Do you make it a habit to meet with brothers and sisters in Christian worship? Are you learning to walk day by day as the spirit-filled person? Are you letting everything you do be an overflow of your faith? Are you learning to model a spirit of humility? Is your attitude toward others marked by genuine love? Are you kind? Are you patient? Are you self-controlled? Do you aim to forgive others? Do you trust God in all he has for you? Paul was willing to call other people to imitate him, not because of his status as an apostle. He called people to imitate him because his pursuit was Christ. As we call others to imitate us, may we be calling them to come and do the same.
with a genuine love that is rooted in God. This time I'd like to invite our choir to come up and uh, you bow your heads and pray with me. Lord, you, you have, have called us in to be a new people. And God, we, we, are, we are learning what it means to be that. It is a process. God, we, we still need your help so much. God, would you get, continue to give us grace as, as we learn? Because we, we know that we are, we are nowhere close to where, you, where, we are in, where you meant for us to be. But God, may we strive. Would you give us a, a, a heart of humility that kills pride? There's so many things that cause pride in our lives. God, may we trust you. May we trust you more and more. May we be the church you've called us to be. May we love one another with a genuine love like Jesus has loved us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.